and welcome to Volleyball State, a look at college volleyball in six rotations, proudly sponsored this week by the University of Nebraska Federal Credit Union, where by just listening to this show, you are eligible to be a member. I'm Jeff Sheldon. I'm Lincoln Arneal. On the show today, also sponsored by Bison Incorporated, it's the Final Four, Nebraska versus Pittsburgh, Texas versus Wisconsin. It's all this week, and we break down all the matchups and the players to know with Dan Gilman, one of the hosts of the Six Rotations podcast. Plus, we've got three number one seeds and the defending national champion in this year's Final Four. Why so few upsets in this sport? Plus, a look at the All-Americans just named and so much more. But first, thanks for following the show on Twitter. You can find us at Volleyball Pod. Email the show at volleyballstate at gmail.com. And of course, we are part of the Podcast House Media Podcasting Network. You can find us and all the great podcast housing shows or podcast house shows at podcasthousemedia.com. If you want to hit us up individually, you can find me on Twitter at by Jeff Sheldon. And I'm on Twitter at Lincoln underscore VB. You can also read all my coverage live from Tampa this week on huskersillustrated.com. I know uh, you just finished up stuff and got it off to the publisher or the editors. What were you working on? Uh, let's see, we're recording this Wednesday afternoon. Uh, press availability just wrapped up. What have you got that's going up on Huskers.com now? I have a story kind of about the uh, the freshman flavor of the semifinal matchup, which we will talk a lot about during our first rotation, rotation one. So, And a few other uh, great nuggets. Becca Alec, who hates semifinals and wants to uh, beat those up and uh, – take down the semifinal and make it to a final. So read all that at huskersillustrated.com. So we'll talk about Nebraska-Pittsburgh in our first rotation. That's the first semifinal on ESPN, 6 p.m. Central. You can watch that or listen to our good friends John Baylor and Lauren Cook-West on the radio. Uh, Rotation 2, we will be joined by our friend Dan Gilman, who of the Six Rotations podcast, so we'll have Dan. Dan knows all about rotation, so he'll come on and talk about that. It's a crossover pod, our first one. Yeah. And then uh, talk to him about what he's seen this year and uh, what to expect from this weekend. Then rotation three, we'll kind of get into our individual team previews. We'll talk about Texas and three. And then rotation four will be Wisconsin. Uh, rotation five, we will talk about all Americans were unveiled on Wednesday. Who from Nebraska made it? Any other surprises? But I think I think there's a pretty good list. And then we'll wrap up as mm-hmm. promised, as previewed from our last episode. Uh, what is up with all the chalk in, in college volleyball? What does it take to be a top team, and how how hard is it for teams to break through? So those are our six rotations. We will start with what everyone is anticipating for Nebraska versus Pittsburgh. We've got uh, Blue Blood versus New Blood a little bit in this matchup, and I know we're going to talk about sort of the lack of upsets uh, in the Final Four. If you took a big picture look at the sport, Pittsburgh is a relative newcomer to volleyball success, but they are definitely one of the most successful programs of the last five years. This is Pittsburgh's third straight trip to the Final Four under their coach, Dan Fisher. Uh, They met Nebraska in the Final Four two years ago, and the Huskers won that one to advance to the national championship match. The only losses that Pittsburgh has had this season, BYU in the season opener, they had a five-set loss to Oregon in September. Uh, They were swept by Louisville. Um, in the middle of the ACC season, and then they had a five-set loss at Florida State. They're twenty-nine and four on the season, and man, this is this is a really good team, Lincoln. I don't know how much you've been able to, you know, you studied up a lot on them. You've you've probably been able to talk with the Dan Fisher and some of their players 
But let's just take a look real quick over their last three seasons and how how they have ended. In in 2021, they lost three to one in the final four, the national semifinal to Nebraska uh, in Columbus, Ohio. Pittsburgh won game one, 25-16, and were rocking and rolling early before the Huskers came back and won the next three sets. Um, Lincoln, you were probably at this one, right? Weren't you at the final yes. four in Columbus? Nationwide arena. Uh, and and this one came down to you know the wire in game four too. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, game four was tied 2020 before Lawrence Stiverens uh, took over. She had two big kills, two big blocks. Uh, Nebraska pulls that out 25-22. And you mentioned they lost that first set. It was very similar to what uh, Nebraska and Arkansas, Pittsburgh ran very fast, very quick offense. They ran a 6-2. Um, and mm-hmm. Nebraska had a hard time adjusting to it. But when they did, they shut, a, shut, shut Pittsburgh down and kind of ran away uh, in the second or third games. <laughs> To, uh, to set up a, a win over that. But that was not their last trip. They were uh, they, they bounced back that next year in 2002. Uh, again, one of the probably one of the best, uh, most intense rivalries. They faced ACC foe Louisville in the national semifinal up in Omaha um, and went five sets with them again. Uh, but so Pittsburgh just fell apart. I mean, one of the defining characteristics of this year's and really the last couple of years is Pitt's, Pittsburgh's grit and kind of determination, but they fell behind early. And then they, I don't know if they, they raised the white flag, but they lost that fifth set 15 to two. I don't know if I've ever seen that. It's the most, before. yeah, right. That's what I was going to say. That's the most lopsided fifth set that, that I've ever seen. And that was up in Omaha uh, last year in 2022. And of course the, the script for 2023 is yet to be written. Pittsburgh, um, came back to beat Louisville in the regional final. I, I think this has been the most intense volleyball rivalry in the country over the last three or four years is, is Pittsburgh-Louisville. Um, Pittsburgh dropped the first two sets to Louisville in the regional final at home last weekend, went in the locker room, turned it around, came back, and won the next three sets to to advance to their third straight final four. Uh, Pittsburgh is very good both offensively and defensively. We'll tell you a little bit about the Panthers individually in a minute, but you know they're right up there with Wisconsin in in being excellent offensively and defensively. Pittsburgh is second in the country in blocks this year, only behind Wisconsin. They also serve very tough. Their freshman Olivia Babcock's a very good server. I think they have the potential to to serve Nebraska kind of at the same level that Arkansas served Nebraska at last weekend, where Arkansas serves really dealt Nebraska fits, you know, Nebraska's passing is going to have to be really on point on Thursday evening to, uh, to, to mitigate that. Um, Pittsburgh yeah. uh, is, is number two in the country in blocks. And what I thought was interesting when I looked this up the other day, Lincoln, we actually have the top three blocking teams in the country, all in the final four in Texas, Wisconsin and Pitt and poor Nebraska is hanging out there at like number 22. So not, not, you know, near the bottom of the country by any means. But we've talked a little bit about how blocking is not necessarily Nebraska's strength this year, although they have put it together in the last three matches of the NCAA tournament, where I think they've had 42 blocks over their last three matches, season high 17 in the regional final against Arkansas. But Pittsburgh's right there with Wisconsin at right about three blocks per set. And that's something that Nebraska is going to have to deal with in their front line. For sure, yeah, that, that front line really sets the tone. They are also one of the nation's leaders in opponents hitting percentages. In fact, again, mirroring the blocks, but slightly different. Uh, Nebraska, Pittsburgh, and Wisconsin are the three leading teams in opponents hitting percentage. So, uh, it we for all the talk we have about good offenses and how much you like the pretty volleyball, Jeff. Sorry, sorry to say, mm-hmm. could be a defensive uh, no, slugfest this weekend. I get it, and I'm trying to remember. I think it was in a conversation with Russ Rose a few years ago where I asked him. 
hey, what what stats do you keep an eye on? Russ was always famous for you know sitting there and charting in his notebook, and and we've got all these advanced stats now. And and the one of the biggest ones he said is like if if you are one of the nation's leaders in opponent hitting percentage, if you're one of the best teams in the country at covering your own hitters, which doesn't necessarily show up in the box score, but he said if you're if you're if you're great defensively, if you cover your own hitters and you never give up in ball pursuit, the best teams in the country in those three areas usually go deep in the NCAA tournament. And Pittsburgh is is one of those teams uh, sure. this year. We talk about their defense, but in offense, we talked earlier about how Pittsburgh runs a 6-2. Uh, no longer, I mean, they, they messed with it a little bit earlier this year, but this is Rachel Fairbanks' show uh, to run. She was part of those 6-2 offenses, but has really elevated her play and uh, they really look good running a, a five one, and we we see the sometimes the problems in consistency and the, and mm-hmm. matchups are created during a six two. But uh, Pittsburgh really hasn't missed a beat running it, switching to a five one because uh, they have a lot of dynamic hitters too. And Rachel Fairbanks, she was a pretty good mm-hmm. attacker. She would actually play all six rotations, but when she was in the front row, she was an attacker. Uh, but now she's running mm-hmm. five setter this year for the Panthers. Yeah. Penn State did that a few years ago. I forget which, uh, it might have been Abby Dietering for Penn State was um, when they'd run a 6-2 and she was in the front row, she'd be the opposite hitter. And then in the back row, she'd end up being uh, the setter along with Brianna Weiskircher. But yeah, it looked like uh, Pitt messed with that a little bit early in the season. And Fairbanks, this is her third year as a starter. She's a junior. She was actually a a starting setter in their 6-2 when they played Nebraska two years ago in the Final Four um, in Columbus. And just today on Wednesday, she was named a first team All-American. So honestly, the setter position, like it was the first thing I looked at because I had made the prediction on the show a couple of weeks ago that Tammy Miner from Stanford and Hannah Pukas from Oregon were going to be your two first team All-America setters. And the ABCA threw me for a loop. They actually named three first team All-American setters, which was those two and Rachel Fairbanks um, from Pitt. So congratulations right. to, to Pitt for having a, a first-team All-American setter. Nebraska setter, not too bad in her own right. A second-team All-American honor for Bergen Riley. We'll talk about that here and in one of our later rotations. But the names you're going to hear over and over again for Pittsburgh on Thursday night are their two freshman pin hitters that really carry the load offensively. Um, the one that first comes to mind is six foot five opposite hitter Olivia Babcock, who, link for my money, is is going to be named the national freshman of the year. We've got predictions was. coming out. Oh, she was? Did that she happen was. today already? It came out with freshman. Right. Freshman is the one award they announced today, and you are correct. Olivia Babcock. I was right. All right. Well, let's tell you why that was kind of a no-brainer. I am certainly not any kind of Nostradamus, but Babcock is averaging 3.6 kills a set. She's a six foot five opposite hitter. She hit 311 on the year, which is outstanding. Uh, she had 16 kills in the regional final against Louisville and Lincoln. Uh, I believe she's a lefty. Um, I don't know. Uh, I think she's a lefty, and that's always advantageous to play on the right side. And so Nebraska is going to have a big, big um, freshman opposite hitter to deal with. She also serves very well. I believe she plays six rotations. They'll yes. set her D balls in the back row, kind of like Nebraska sets Merritt Beeson. And so this is just an outstanding player that, Dan Fisher has been able to recruit to Pittsburgh, but it doesn't start. It doesn't stop yeah. there. They've got a, the, a freshman on the other side as well. Yeah, not the only freshman hitter. In fact, Pittsburgh's two leading attackers are both freshman uh, freshman players too. Because Tori Stafford is a on the left pin. She's also averaging more than three kills per set, three point two, and is hitting two seventy nine. Which for a left side hitter and all the junk they have to deal with is is pretty good too. And she's also their primary passer. She, I mean, I don't know if teams just target her, which they probably a lot of times they target. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she handles a lot of their serve. 
serve receive and kind of uh, has embraced that role too. So she's also one of their better passers as well too. So Stafford and Babcock, it's really unusual with all the freshmen on the mm-hmm. court too. That, I mean, they have some other really great players, uh, but the, those two are their leading attackers as freshmen. When you put it all together and you look at Tori Stafford's, um, her resume this year, if she didn't have the National Freshman of the Year playing right side for her and Olivia Babcock, that's a great case for National Freshman of the Year. Tori Stafford, better than three kills a set, hitting 279, which is an outside. I mean, I think if Nebraska had the chance to have their L1 or L2 hit 279, they would kill for that. And you're playing six rotations and you're a primary passer where teams, you know, we see it with Nebraska and Harper Murray. Opponents like to serve at her to try to wear her down. Um, teams are trying to do the same thing to Tori Stafford for Pittsburgh, and she's held up really, really well. So that's an outstanding resume that Tori Stafford has as well. Uh, the L2 for Pittsburgh is Valeria Vasquez-Gomez. She averages two kills a set. Um, not quite as explosive as Stafford or Babcock. She can go a little hot or cold, but she's going to be the other name to know in the in the Pittsburgh attack. So this is a really, really solid team. It's a, outside the two freshmen. The rest of the veterans have been to the final four now three years in a row. And this is a this is a huge, huge challenge for Nebraska on Thursday night. For sure. And it's all done by the uh, design of Dan Fisher, too. I mean, he's he's kind of the architect behind all of this. He's been at Pittsburgh now for 10 years, uh, won 80 percent of his matches. And really, as we'll talk later, has really kind of punched through uh, that kind of barrier between being a really good team, great team and being a regular final four team, too. Um, he's just the eighth head coach to have a winning percentage of uh, over, which win more than 80% of his matches. Uh, that, John Cook didn't even do that, too. So In his first 10 years, yeah. yeah I was rare, really surprised to see that. So, I mean, yeah, he, and I mean, Dan, Dan Fisher... Dan Fisher is a is a Southern California native, which um, and he, he played uh, collegiately in in California. Uh, he's been in the Team USA program, and and that explains a little bit why he's got these great recruiting connections. Because both um, the setter Rachel Fairbanks, Olivia Babcock, the opposite hitter, and the outside hitter Tori Stafford are all from Southern California. So those California connections have really paid off on the the recruiting trail. And Dan Fisher has been in the Team USA kind of developmental system. He's been um, the head coach of the under-21 team in the, in the Pan Am Cup a couple years ago. And, and some people kind of have him identified as maybe a potential future coach of Team USA, of the senior national team. Yeah, and that was the, that was the team where uh, Becca Alec was part of that, Lexi Rodriguez. Uh, Merritt Beeson was part of that. That's kind of where those two got to know Merritt Beeson and wanted to were so eager to get her on this team. Rachel Fairbanks was on that team. So they all kind of were playing together. So uh, Fish, Dan Fisher has a good read on, on, on Nebraska's elite players, so he kind of knows what to expect. We'll see if that pays off for his scouting report. I think that, that Fisher, too, is now, I mean, his, his value is recognized. He, he just signed an extension with Pittsburgh a couple years ago because, you know, the scuttlebutt had been the other big job on the East Coast was open at the time, Penn State. And, um, you know, there, there, were, there was talk that, that Fisher might have been one of the finalists for that job, perhaps even approached for that job. Um, and uh, ended up deciding to to stay with Pittsburgh, the program that he had built up over the previous eight years. And by all accounts, he is he is one of the best five, potentially ten uh, coaches in the country. And and if it is something that he is interested in, I imagine he's going to have the chance at um, different positions, maybe even international positions. If uh, if that's something that does interest him, although certainly nothing that we're going to be looking at uh, on Thursday night at six o'clock when Nebraska and Pittsburgh for a chance to move on to Sunday afternoon's national championship match. 
The University of Nebraska Federal Credit Union is a proud supporter of Husker Volleyball and their fans, and now they can add that they're a proud sponsor of the Volleyball State podcast. We know there are tons of alumni, fans, and friends of the University of Nebraska who listen to this show. And if you're an alum of any of the University of Nebraska campuses, that's UNL, UNO, University of Nebraska Kearney, or the University of Nebraska Med Center, or if you're a family member who is have a family member who's an alum, or if you're just a big Husker fan, you too can become a member of the University of Nebraska Federal Credit Union. Membership has its benefits. That includes personal service. Hey, a real person is going to pick up the phone and answer your call when you're calling, and they'll be there to help you drive through windows at both of their Lincoln locations, plus all of their convenient online options as well. They've got an updated website and a mobile app, so you can bank online from anywhere, anytime. Members in the University of Nebraska Federal Credit Union also get low interest rates on loans like home equity, refinancing, and auto loans with never any added fees, fees, excuse me, and their staff is committed to making banking easy for you. So they've got those two Lincoln locations that I mentioned. You can stop in downtown near the UNL campus at 17th and P, or if you're in central Lincoln and that's more convenient from, for you, you can find them on 52nd Street, just north of O Street, and you can always find complete details and become a member and do your banking online at nufcu.org. Special thanks to the University of Nebraska Federal Credit Union for bringing you Volleyball State for these last couple weeks. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And we'll move on now to Rotation 2 with our special guest, uh, Dan Gilman of the Six Rotation Podcast. Dan does a lot to promote college volleyball. So he kind of covers um, everything across the country. Uh, he came to Big Ten Media Days. He also hosts a special show every week with AVCA uh, with Mick Haley, his co-host on Six Rotations podcast, where they un- they get to unveil the top 25 poll every week. He provides his thoughts and insights to that, too. So uh, Dan is a man about the sport, too, and a very uh, a rising broadcaster in the industry and co- covers some other sports as well, too. So uh, chances are, if you watch Nebraska women basketball play against Wyoming, Dan was the person on the call for that match, that game too. So he's everywhere, and we're glad to have him join us today on our podcast. All right, we are joined now by Dan Yelman of Six Rotations Podcast. So glad to have you on, Dan. Thanks for joining us uh, across the city in Tampa. Where we're both here. I'll wave you across the bay or something like that. So glad to have you on. Yeah, happy to be here. I'll tell you what, Lincoln. I love the fine state of Nebraska, but I'll never, ever, ever forget my walk from the hotel to the convention center over and over again last year. <laughs> snowy 19 degrees so it is really nice for it to be 75 and, and sunny here but i'm happy to be with you guys love the love the content and, and excited to kind of chat about everything coming up into uh thursday and, and sunday are you guys both in tampa or is like one of you over in saint pete i we're both in tampa I'm in- west tampa i think officially there's a giant water tower outside my hotel that says west tampa but we are both in tampa proper okay okay excellent well i mean either of them great places to be in december i think in nebraska it's currently like 42 degrees, and this is a warm day um, in Lincoln, Nebraska. Dan, we're really appreciated uh, that you being with us. We, we joke that this is a, the first 
crossover pod episode I think we've done where we're doing it with, with six rotations. We want to establish you to our audience a little bit, let you tell them a little bit about your background. You know, you've got a background in sports broadcasting. Tell us a little bit about your path and then how six rotations came to be because you got yourself one heck of a co-host on that show. Yeah, there's there's no doubt about it. And it's it's quite a journey. So uh grew up in, in South Florida, a suburb of Fort Lauderdale, so about 45 minutes north of Miami, and started doing uh you know, like highlight stuff, internship stuff in high school, or I'd go to the local Friday night games and I'd film it and use Adobe Premiere Pro or, you know, any of the editing services mm-hmm. and then turn that into kind of starting to broadcast a little bit of the high school stuff, which was a really big school down there. And then I went to the University of Florida, go Gators. I know John Cook made a little bit of a mistake on the press conference today. He's like, I'm looking for for crocodiles out there. Oh, no. <laughs> It is alligator. It's our alligator state. There are no crocodiles here in Florida, but uh, broadcasted there, did a lot of play by play. But that's how I got in with volleyball. My first ever gig was doing a fill in radio. Florida versus Tennessee volleyball match. And mm-hmm. so from that, I, I kind of got addicted to covering a sport that was so fast paced. And, and I, I very much live an emotional style with, with my broadcasting. And so it's a little bit tougher to do sports with 45 second delays between plays, you know, or mm-hmm. a little bit less flow than, you know, soccer and, and basketball and volleyball do. And so then from that went into big Tentville and, and got a job as the radio traveling broadcaster for Dave Shondell's Purdue Boilermakers. Mm-hmm. And so graduated about you know, seven years ago and uh, worked in West Lafayette for, for two and a half seasons, uh, made a trip to Devaney. I want to say mm-hmm. 2019, 2018, great, mm-hmm. great atmosphere, had a phenomenal time in Lincoln. I think it was a football weekend, maybe. Um, and so that was great just to see the crowds and everything like that. Maybe it was maybe it was the following week, but it was just mm-hmm. I, I, I walk around Memorial Stadium. And and uh, and so from that moved out to California. And that's when it all kind of started when I got a job doing some play by play out in Central California. And it was this the spring volleyball tournament. So it was a, the year it was in Omaha. And I noticed there wasn't any bracket breakdown. There was no coverage mm-hmm. on TV. Mm-hmm. There was nothing. So I just decided, you know what? I've got a lot of free time on my hands. I'm about to move across the country. It's April 21. I'm covering Purdue, but I'm not with them because it's all remote because of COVID. So I was mm-hmm. calling those matches remotely. And I decided I was going to do a Zoom show that was going to break down all 48 teams for the NCAA tournament that year. So I set up emails. I set up Zoom calls with either a reporter, a coach, a player, a broadcaster from all 48 teams. Mm-hmm. And that, that, you know, whatever you want to call it, show, episode, whatever it was, got a little bit of attention. And there were some people inside the volleyball world that had reached out to me and said, hey, we want you to keep doing this, whatever it takes to bankroll it, steamroll it, promote it. We think you've got something here. And so I I wish I could remember exactly how Mick was thrown into the bunch. I, I can't say I remember. I, I, it might have been Kathy DeBoer, who was the mm-hmm. head of NBA at the time, a legend, obviously, in the pioneering world with women's sports and women's volleyball specifically. There's actually going to be a really fun event uh, coming up on Friday to honor her. Um, she has since been replaced, obviously, as, as the head from Jamie mm-hmm. Gordon, who's phenomenal leader with the ABCA. And so she said, what if you use Mick Haley as your co-host? Why don't you guys do like a rehearsal episode together? And so it's, it's, it's been, I'm sure you guys can understand. It's kind of a weird thing where you're like, is it a podcast? If you're a video, cause right. we're on YouTube, 
it's like, what do you call it? But everyone calls it a podcast, and I, I stopped complaining about it at like six or eight months. Did, did you know who Mick Haley was when they told you to host a show with him? You know, to be completely honest, I did more in the negative lights of the way that he left USC mm-hmm. and the headlines from that than who he was as a Olympian mm-hmm. or as a championship coach in Texas. It was it, it was me doing a little bit more research and then us yeah. grabbing a drink the first time we met. That's when I really was able to learn more and more. But he is a 19-year-old in heart when it comes to being a fan. <laughs> and if you listen to our show, we're on YouTube, Six Rotations. Every episode, he comes in with all of this energy. He's got spreadsheets and notes and predictions and everything. And people will, you know, people, especially the Husker mm-hmm. Nation, they hate him, right? They, it's just one of those things. Our comments are filled every episode with people that cannot stand Mick. I'm and sure he loves just, that. Yeah, you know, he knows he knows it. It is what it is. He he he's just such a good fan of the of the sport. And it's such an important person to not disappear. And so he was kind of blackballed from a lot of areas of volleyball. And so it's really great for me to find a way to get him back propped up. And then we called the Southland uh, tournament together last month in Corpus Christi, which was him trying to crack back into the volleyball world. And that was a lot of fun as well. So we've been going for three seasons now. Um, now we host the uh, NCAA fan experience at the Final Four as well. We did it in Omaha last year, so we'll be doing it again tomorrow. Uh, just real quick, I, I don't want to take for granted that all of our listeners know who Mick Haley is. Mick Haley is one of the most prominent and decorated volleyball coaches in American history. He was a longtime coach at Texas. He was Jerry Elliott's predecessor, uh, and then he was the the coach at Southern California. He's coached the Olympic teams. Like this is, if you have a chance to talk volleyball with someone, Mick Haley is in your Mount Rushmore people probably to sit down and, and talk about volleyball with. And Dan, it sounds like your path followed ours to to an extent where you just kind of looked around and you're like, no one's on this corner. And as you started talking about volleyball, you realized there was a whole community out there who who would kind of help you out, right? People reaching out. Yeah, of course, I, I'm a head coach at this program. I'm going to sit down and talk to you. And I think that's one thing, Lincoln that you and I have found is that like every do- almost every door has been open to us. No door has been closed to us and try doing that with a major basketball or a college football podcast. And a lot more doors are going to be closed to you than be open. And that's one of the great things about this community is like, we've been able to get assistant coaches, head coaches, former coaches, uh, broadcasters, and everyone has been like, yes, we are interested in growing the sport. And even if, you know, wherever, whatever your platform is, we're going to, we're going to help you out with it. Yeah, that's why I, I that uh, that 2020 2021 tournament too. I remember you guys asked me, you guys start. I felt like I kind of exploded a little bit nationally too with some of the coverage about uh, the happening in Omaha too. And also, I also remember our good friend Emily Eamon. Also, I felt like she kind of blossomed onto the uh, national scene. So that that COVID uh, tournament really started a lot of a lot of people's careers or jump started them into a bigger stratosphere too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I will say, Mick, two championships won at Texas, two championships won at USC. He's the only coach to win multiple at two different schools, which is just an incredible feat. He's, I think it's, there's only two coaches that have even won a championship at two different schools. You know, and you guys are mm-hmm. you know, talking about it or um, going to talk about, I don't know, but about, you know, how, what different schools have won championships and how exclusive of company it really is. Mm-hmm. And it's like Pittsburgh is trying to crack into here this week. Yeah, I think but John like, Dunning is the only other coach to win a national title multiple schools. And he did it at like Pacific and Stanford, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, what's interesting, too, about all of this and when it comes into it and, you know, I do want to I want to go on that. I, I want to ask you guys and I as a podcaster, it's hard to go on another podcast and not ask questions back. You mentioned all of these 
uh, coaches and, and these people who are like kind of your Mount Rushmore of guests so far? Ooh. Oh, wow. Um, well, Lee Feinswag uh, probably has to be on the Mount Rushmore. He's one of two guests that we've had twice. Um, Emily Eamon being the other guest that we've had twice. Um, I, I think, you know, and I covered Kelly Hunter as a player uh, when she was at Nebraska. I feel like I've talked to Kelly Hunter like a hundred times. I thought her interview with us was really insightful and thoughtful and, and gave a perspective that we don't get all the time. You know, we broadcasters are great interviews because they know how to do it. And they know how to talk. Kelly brought some, I think, specialized knowledge that, you know, we're not going to go get from from another reporter that that covers Nebraska. And so that was good. Those are kind of the ones that stick out to me. And and I don't want to leave anyone out. So, Lincoln, yeah. do you have anyone else that's really kind of jumped out to you? I really enjoyed having Michaela Chester bring the national perspective who was able to join us and uh, really kind of bring that almost immediately break down the bracket hours after it was released, too. Um, I, I also really enjoyed um, having Wayne State's coach, Scott Kneifel, on there, too. Um, he just come from a different perspective, too. Really good to give uh, that program some shine and uh, making the Elite Eight at that, that level, too. So Division Two flies even further on the radar. And it was, mm-hmm. I enjoyed talking to him as well, too. The other one that I didn't, I wasn't actually surprised that they said yes, was um, Creighton coach Kirsten Bernthal-Booth, who's a great interview and is now a leader within the ABCA in the, in the coaching community. You know, I'm pretty sure who joined us from like her dining room table on a Sunday morning after they beat Minnesota in the second round, which was really, really gracious of her. And she's always uh, a really insightful interview. So that was kind of another one uh, that I was I was surprised that they said yes, but really grateful that they did. And, and so what's funny about about my show and, and you'll notice it if you kind of go through the episodes on YouTube. When I was with Purdue, we had a podcast every week with probably the most talkative coach there is, right? Dave Shondell, if you're familiar with him, if you follow him on Twitter, you know mm-hmm. he is a sports broadcaster at heart. And so he wanted to do it every week. And I decided after that and after doing my bracket breakdown, whatever you want to call it, the, the, the episode for the, the tournament where I talked to so many coaches, I tried to ask them such important questions and I didn't get zilch, you know, like nothing got out. I said, I don't want to do coaches on this show. I want mm-hmm. this show to be geared towards high school, middle school, and college athletes or their parents that are like interested in the sport. How can I get tips from players? I'm sure the audience here, if you guys have checked out the Bergen Riley interview from last month, that's kind of the idea mm-hmm. that I went with it, where it's more, hey, talk to the to your peers, talk to you know kids a couple years younger than you. And so from the very beginning, my first ever interview, I, I felt like it was such a get. Because it was live from Tokyo, Luca Slave, who was the assistant coach oh, yeah. of the Utah team, we interviewed him. It was the first ever episode. I was so nervous; I'll never forget it. He's sitting in his like cot in in Tokyo, and I'm having him like break down the bed because I remember seeing it viral on social media back <laughs> then. And from then on, no more coaches, players oh. only. And I'm happy that you guys haven't asked me because I don't know if I'd be able to give like a Mount Rushmore of guests because. <laughs> Just such yeah. personalities from like Asiana Presley and and Logan Eggleston. It's just I've been very blessed to be a part of this community and then coming to events like this Final Four last year in Omaha and having a lot of coaches and fans point me out is is just been a it's been a surreal experience. There's no doubt. For sure. Yeah, I enjoyed your interview with Bergen Riley. I think the best question I was the one where you asked what it's like to be a celebrity in Lincoln and kind of being a volleyball player too. So go check that out. Six rotations with Bergen Riley. Uh, greatly. Great day interview. So let's turn our attention a little bit to the matter at hand, the final four. Um, none of these teams are surprised. surprise. Jeff and I uh, will talk about a lot of number ones in there. 
I mean, Texas uh, is the one surprise, which is the defending national national champion and the number two. So seed. it's relative. Yeah, it's not really a surprise. I mean, do, do you feel like the right four teams are here in Tampa? I think these are the best four teams over the final five weeks of the year. You know, when I go back and look at it and you ask me surprises, you know, the gut would say, well, Louisville was probably expected. But ever since their loss to Georgia Tech, they just didn't quite look the same over the final five, four weeks of that season. In Pittsburgh, they lost to Florida State and turned on the afterburners after that. Mm-hmm. With Texas, it's, it's funny because I was able to go to one Texas match this year. I was down doing the Big 12 soccer tournament, and I got to see their second match against Baylor, where they fell down. You know, the first match was a reverse sweep, and then they fell down like 22-16 in that first set and just wiped the floor with the Bears from then on out. They lost one match it was at Kansas State where nobody seemed to win at the end of the year. So they seem like they have really been clicking, and it was something that we saw in the press conference today where Asia O'Neill was saying, we didn't care about being the best team in September. We want to be the best team in December. And that's kind of way that, that Cook and, and Sheffield have really carried themselves ever since the Big Ten media days where we talked to them, and they really didn't care that much about mm-hmm. the priests and picks or the, you know, the preseason, any of that stuff. They're just like, hey, we just want to be there in December. And so these four coaches, as composed as you can see coaches in press conferences today, I think, I think it's the four best teams. I think it's the best possible scenario for volleyball because Texas, volley, Texas, Wisconsin, Nebraska. I can't, I don't, mm-hmm. I can't think of another team that would contend in terms of engagement with fans that will Thursday night bring. You know, like, it's just going to mm-hmm. be. Very excited. Yeah. Well, I mean, we've talked a lot on this show the last couple of weeks uh, about how Wisconsin just seems now that they're healthy head and shoulders uh, as the favorite to, to win the national title. As you look at the, you know, the matchup with Texas on Thursday, a potential rematch with uh, Nebraska or a match with Pittsburgh on Sunday. Dan, do you see anyone beating Wisconsin uh, this weekend or, or is this Wisconsin's title to lose? I think both of those things can be true. I, I think it can be Wisconsin's title to lose, and I think they can lose. I, I think the only reason that I would put them, like, let's say you switch the two Big Ten teams, I would have more confidence in Wisconsin if they play Pittsburgh first than playing Texas first. I don't think Wisconsin matches up extremely well with Texas. Pittsburgh has a freshman that leads the way. Texas has veterans that lead the way. And so that's a little bit of a difference, obviously. And Wokolo is a, is a senior, but I consider that's Olivia Babcock's team. She's mm-hmm. the sixth rotation opposite. On the other side of things, Madison Skinner, <clears throat> I've talked about this in person. When you have a player like that, when you have a Fecky, when you have a plumber, when you have a Skinner, you just never quite know what can come out of that match. So I think because the first round here, the, whatever, the regional, the, the regional final for Wisconsin, was the way it went. I think if they were matched up with Pittsburgh here, I'd have more confidence in them. I genuinely think that they are less favored than Texas felt favored last year, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. For sure. Uh, we got done with media day uh, today on Wednesday, asked a lot of questions. I mean, those are somewhat useful, but a lot of times national media gets a chance to get to know these teams on a larger stage. Uh, however, I will say you asked my favorite question of the day. Uh, you asked it to uh, Three of the coaches, too. Nebraska plays the first match. After that, Wisconsin and Texas play. You asked several coaches who Nebraska fans will be cheering for. Uh, what was your kind of take on their answers? And what, who do you think Nebraska fans will, will be cheering for? I think Nebraska fans are 
I think they're going to root for Texas because the same way that you guys are. I'm just being honest. Like I, the the ones who want. I think win he's right for what it's worth. The ones who want to win a championship don't, don't want the favorite, and that's the same thing that Jarrett was saying. Jared Elliott, the head coach of Texas, like, hey, we're kind of the underdog in this match. So the smarter fans are going to root for the team that they think they can beat more. And so that you two both saying the, the framing that question is it Wisconsin's championship to lose. Why would you root for the team that you think is the is the mm-hmm. favorite? Right. So that's where and that's, you know, Kelly answered it in a way. He was the first one I asked and I wasn't planning on asking everyone. I just really wanted to know Kelly's answer to it. You know, Wisconsin's head coach. And he said, depending on the age, right, the ones that are older then the merger or whatever the transfer in, in conferences are probably not going to root for Texas, but the mm-hmm. ones that are younger and have only really known the Wisconsin rivalry don't feel any angst towards Texas. So I do think that might be in a way, but also I'm telling you the 65 year old Nebraska fans that want another mm-hmm. ring there. I think they'd rather face Texas and the fans. They know that there's less Texas fans than Wisconsin fans. So that's yeah. got to factor in too. Mm-hmm. Your, face, your face told it all. Like, you know, Texas based on my Twitter mentions, None of my Twitter mentions are all are rooting for Texas too. They all hate Texas with a passion, but that's a very small vocal minority. So, yeah, I mean Lincoln and I are old enough to to have been in the Big Twelve era as well as this Big Ten era, and I think you you need some really really extenuating circumstances to get a Nebraska fan to root for Texas in any sport. I feel like Wisconsin and Kelly Sheffield might just be those extenuating circumstances. <laughs> I've seen message board posts, social media posts saying like, you know, hey, Texas, if you ever want us to not hate you as much as we do, do us a solid and beat Wisconsin on Thursday. But I mean, I think rivalries like this are are great for the sport. And Dan, not just because we started the show this season, but we've watched the TV numbers. We've watched the attendance numbers. We know that uh, this is the first year where the national championship match is going to be on a major broadcast network. And it really feels like this is a historic year for the sport of women's college volleyball. How have you seen this sport kind of reach an inflection point in popularity? What has brought us to kind of the special circumstances of this season? And and where does it go from here? I love the way that you frame it, because it, what has brought us here? That's the question, right? Because it's not like the fans have increased. It's It's not necessarily, hey, more people. It's the way that we've been able to reach more people this season. And that's what it mm-hmm. is. It's the fact that even like the littlest amount of TikTok that I, I find my way watching. I, there is some volleyball where two years ago there was none. You know, there's things like I wanted to start a six rotations TikTok. So I did last year and there was like a little bit. But now I'm like, oh, there's so many other people that are wanting to do that stuff. That's great. I don't need to get hands on. There are all these other podcasts and shows popping up. And the fact that, you know, the press conferences today were packed. So I think it, it starts with the decision makers and there's still a little bit more room. I want there to be bracket challenge on ESPN.com. That feels like the simplest thing. Or, and I've talked with Kelly about this. I'd love for us to find a way. Why isn't, why isn't BTN on Sunday for the final doing like a watch along with one of the coaches? You know, like there no, are that's, a, things, that's a really good idea. And that's what I was texting with Kelly about. I'm like, what are some ways like I wanted to do at the big 10 media days? I was able to do the last two seasons, a coach's round table, which was a little bit more of like a, let's take our jackets off. And I, you know, season one last year I had, Kelly Sheffield, Dave Shondell, Jen Lynn Oldenburg, mm-hmm. Leah Johnson. And it was it was wild. I mean, they were open. They were honest. We talked about gambling. You know, we mm-hmm. talked about the tournament, whether there'd be a Big Ten tournament this year. Great. You know, Aaron Virtue was added and we had Keegan Cook in as well. And it was more of like a 
let's show fans your real selves a little bit more. And that's what I wanted to crack down barriers with. And that's what I'm seeing with some of these social media pages where it's like Nebraska's Twitter and Wisconsin's Twitter are being a little bit more personable. It's less mm -hmm. just fan yeah. engagement or like today we're seeing players do some wild stuff that fans are going to see on social media over the next few days because they're doing photo shoots and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. I love seeing it. Um, you know, I do think that there's more room. I, I don't know why we can't bet on it yet. We're so regulating with gambling. I have friends that are like, hey, you're calling this match. Why can't I go bet on it? That's the only way I'd watch it. And I just respond, <laughs> I don't know why. It doesn't make any sense to me why you can bet on women's basketball and softball, but not women's volleyball. So there are still ways. And obviously, we're going to get greedy. We're not going to sit back and say, well, we're happy with where we've gone. But I do think the answer to your question is back to because of the amount of reach that we've been able to give. And it's less having games on national TV and more promoting how many games are on national TV and how many times that we are seeing promotions. And that's what we need to do, marketing teams and all that kind of stuff. And that's mm -hmm. why there's no, there's no denying when I have Bergen on or when I have, you know, the Texas duo that I had on the show, there's going to be more watchers than when I have Washington state superstar, even though she's amazing, they mm -hmm. just don't, they don't bring the same amount of angst yep. and love and all that kind of stuff that those teams do, you know? That's why they'll be in the Mountain West next year. Sorry, Washington State. <laughs> you, you that is, that uh, is several other reasons. I'm sorry. Yeah, you mentioned that TikTok. I want to give a shout out. Abby Benton on TikTok has 95,000 followers. I mean, there's people that are doing a great job all across the, uh, the volleyball media spectrum, too. So, And Dan Gilman does a great job with his podcast and, and work. Dan Gilman of the Six Rotations podcast joining us uh, from the Final Four in Tampa. Dan's going to be at the matches uh, all weekend long. You can find his stuff on YouTube and also just wherever podcasts are found, right, Dan? Six, just look for Six Rotations. Yeah, YouTube is going to be the spot. Um, and then if you want to follow on X or Twitter, it's just uh, Six Rotations or Daniel Gilman, G-I-L-L-M-A-N. You know, when we were, uh, Lincoln and I were kicking around show title ideas, I think Six Rotations was one of them we came up with. And I remember texting it to Lincoln and him texting me back after like 10 minutes. He goes, Hey, apparently there's another guy that does a podcast called Six Rotations. And this would have been in like late August. What do you, I, I can't hear what you're saying. There already is when I already. Oh, we knew each other. Yeah. Oh, OK. So, yeah, he Lincoln Lincoln sent me straight on that. And, and we settled on uh, on Volleyball State. And we're glad that the sport is getting to a point where where shows like ours can can be viable and get listeners. And, and you know, we can help kind of grow the sport beyond a. Uh, what it was maybe when I when I left it uh, a few years ago. Dan, thank you so much for being with us today. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks so much, guys. If you need competition quality volleyball equipment, contact the Good Sports at Bison Inc. This Nebraska-based manufacturer has the widest selection of indoor and outdoor systems available with your choice of carbon, aluminum, steel, hybrid, and portable volleyball systems. Volleyball Day in Nebraska happened using the setup from Bison. The teams played inside Memorial Stadium on Bison's freestanding portable Arena Junior. Call 1-800-247-7668 for help finding the perfect fit for your facility. Request a quote online or find a Bison dealer near you at www.bisoninc.com. That's bisoninc.com. And we'll move real quickly right now into Rotation 3 where we will preview the Longhorns from Texas. I think this is, I was just thinking about this today while I was, while I was driving to work. Um, Texas is normally kind of boring. I think boring in a couple of ways, boring in, in their on-court play. They're not always the most imaginative or fast or creative, like 
volleyball on offense. That's because they usually have these Olympic level pin hitters that you can just throw the ball up to and be like, make ball go boom, please. But then also Texas is predictable in their excellence. You know, they they make the final four almost every year. They win the Big 12. I don't know how many years in a row they won it 12 years in a row. But, you know, they're always good. And so they're their own type of dynasty. Well, this is an interesting year from Texas because Texas is not as predictable as they usually are. They had some early season and mid-season struggles. They got swept by Stanford. They got their clocks cleaned in Gregory Gym. Stanford almost hit 400 on them and swept them early in the season. And then uh, Texas goes to Manhattan and gets swept by Kansas State. Uh, They're not a number one seed. They were a two seed. They got sent on the road for regionals. That hardly ever happens. And then as we saw last weekend, Lincoln, they were a point away from losing in the Sweet 16 to Tennessee and we might, we're not even talking about Texas anymore. We're talking about probably Stanford then and four number one seeds making the final four. But, you know, this is credit to Jarrett Elliott and his coaching staff that, you know, they, it, adversity is a relative term when you're talking about Texas. But they had to overcome some uh, some bumps and bruises this year. For sure, too. And this is a point made by Coach Elliott during the press conferences today. Uh, I don't know. We'll see if you buy it. But he actually said Texas is an underdog in the final four, too, uh, this year. Mm. Because, uh, I mean, they have three other number one seeds. But Texas is a number two seed, which they would have been the seven overall seeds. So you have the one, three, four, and seven teams. So I don't mm-hmm. know if uh, Texas is. I mean, they're, they're, they are technically an underdog because they're playing Wisconsin, who I think is the best team in the country and considered the favorite to win the final four. Sure. Uh, Texas writ large is never going to be an underdog. So, I mean, I guess embrace that Jarrett while you can. Um, but yeah, I mean, for sure, Texas is, (laughs) Texas is the number two seed or the only number two seed to make the final four this year. They're also the defending national champion. Um, And that team is never going to be considered, you know, like the, the little engine that could. So I imagine it's an interesting position for for texas to be in like do they draw motivation from that is this can oh, yeah. you really put the nobody believed in us theory on to texas i would be interesting i mean these are players who have all been to the final four they won the national title last year like go ask molly phillips and asia o'neill if they consider themselves underdog is and you know i, I imagine that they're going to rebuff that yeah number one overall pick asia o'neill who was the first pick of the columbus fury right well, hey, let's let's get into let's get into the Longhorns yeah. individually for a little bit. Some of these players are going to be familiar to Nebraska fans. Um, you know, some of them are, are at least new to wearing burnt orange. Uh, Texas is really kind of up there with Wisconsin with being um, the school that's really embraced the the transfer portal over the last couple of years. Both of Texas's starting outside hitters are transfers and started their college careers elsewhere. Maddie Skinner started her career at Kentucky and helped them win a national championship back in. Was it 2020 or 2020? I think it was 2020. It was the COVID net title. The 2020 that, season um, that happened in April of 2021. Okay. That's why I, <laughs> I'm getting my calendars mixed up. Maddie Skinner um, and Jenna Wenis, who started her career at Minnesota and transferred to Texas last year. They're, Texas is starting outside hitters. Skinner is, again, is probably the one person who I think could challenge Sarah Franklin for national player of the year. Uh, she's had an outstanding NCAA tournament. Skinner averages 4.8 kills a set, um, which would lead the Big Ten, I believe, if, if she were in the Big Ten. She had 24 kills in the regional final over Stanford, where Texas went out and knocked off the Cardinal in Palo Alto. Um, she is playing for her third straight NCAA title, uh, which was something that, you know, only 
I think the Penn State crew was able to uh, pull off. Not even the Stanford class that won three titles in four years uh, won three straight. So Maddie Skinner is really the player that makes that Texas offense go. And if she got less than, I don't know, 50 swings against Wisconsin on Thursday night, I would be surprised. Yeah, for sure. I, going for her own personal three-piece, she did win that as Kentucky as a freshman and then last year with Texas. So looking for that too. So, But her running partner, Jenna Wenis, uh, is a little bit more inconsistent too. I mean, she has a chance to have some big, big matches, some high numbers, mm-hmm. but also I think she's a little more air prone. Um, yeah, Wenis is very high air. Doesn't have, yeah, doesn't have the refined shot selection that Skinner has. So um, that may be one of the Texas's weaknesses uh, when they rely on Wenis to go off a little bit too. But as we mentioned mm-hmm. before too, Texas also has one of the best middle blockers in the nation too in Asia O'Neill. Uh, she is uh, tied for the nation's lead with 1.62 blocks per set and sitting in a nice cool 392 as a middle blocker, which uh, if you get close to 400 or above 400 as a middle blocker, you're one of the uh, mm-hmm. ones in the nation. And then Asia O'Neill also got an extra honor besides being named first team All-American today was the number one overall pick in this week's Pro Volleyball Federation draft uh, that happened on Monday. She was the first pick by, I believe, Leave the Atlanta franchise? Nope. Columbus, Is that right? No, nope, I'm wrong. Fury. Columbus Fury. Okay, the Columbus franchise. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so so Asia O'Neill is going to have a chance to play professionally right here in the United States if she so chooses. Otherwise, I know she's going to definitely have uh, international opportunities if, if that's what she wants to explore as well. So that's the firepower for Texas. But pulling it all together this year has been, to me, one of their most interesting stories. Uh, Texas has a true freshman setter this year, Ellis Swindle who's from Columbia, Missouri, um, was, I believe, the number one or the number two setter in the class of 2023, depending on which ranking service that you uh, that you ascribe to right up there with Bergen Riley. So Bergen Riley from Nebraska and Ella Swindle from Texas were the number one and the number two setters in last year's class. Swindle is a little bit bigger than Bergen Riley. She's six foot three, which makes her a little bit more of an offensive threat in the front row. And you've really seen her grow and blossom as the as the season has moved into November and December. Uh, Texas hit above 300 against Stanford uh, out in Palo Alto in the regional final. And it's it's really interesting to see uh, her confidence and her ability continue to grow, although it's a great parachute for any setter, let alone a true freshman, to have uh, pin hitters to throw the ball up to um, like Maddie Skinner and Jenna Wenis. One thing I think that Texas maybe doesn't do enough, Lincoln, is we've talked about Asia O'Neill. That's a player who probably needs to be getting like five more swings of match than than what she's currently getting. If you've got a middle like her, you know, she can control a match defensively, nation's leader in blocks. If you're Texas, you probably love to see her get a couple more swings of match because whether she's running a gap set in front of the setter, running the slide behind the setter with with the hops that she has and the athletic ability, similar to you know Andy Jackson at Nebraska, that's someone you you want to definitely get a few more swings. For sure. And you look at Texas kind of development, you mentioned their losses earlier in the year. I think it's really Ellis Windows at the center of that, too, as a freshman, kind of figuring out all the moving parts with Texas and figuring out how to uh, best use them and best set them. I think as she's improved with throughout the course of the year, uh, Texas has improved, too. So, I mean, she also we mentioned their outside hitters and Asia O'Neill, but they also have Bella Bergmark, who does a little bit, is kind of the, definitely the B uh, middle blocker. Um, if they get anything out of mm-hmm. her, right? And then Molly Phillips is their opposite, too. She's a veteran, a fifth year player who's really kind of provided some steadiness. And she also has the potential to have a double-digit kill night, too. So uh, she, mm-hmm. she really brings it. And, of course, our Nebraska's old friend, uh, Keanu Leakana, is a defensive specialist in the back row. And also 
uh, still has a very wicked serve that can that can run points too. So uh, very familiar. I, I feel like Nebraska fans have really mm-hmm. knew, uh, that team well. Uh, and also speaking of teams that Nebraska know well and teams that build out of the transfer portal, let's move on to rotation four and visit our old mm-hmm. friend Wisconsin. I feel like we have talked about Wisconsin a lot, like on every episode in once we've hit big time. And play on this show we've talked about wisconsin and i honestly when i was putting together show notes lincoln i was kind of struggling for like what god what do we say about wisconsin that we haven't already said um it was official today that sarah franklin their outside hitter was named a first team all-american as you would expect she's the big 10 player of the year i'm going to bet that on friday she's going to be named the national player of the year and that would be very well deserved um, for Sarah Franklin, who who has the ability to to just absolutely take over a max a match. And I think it's probably the big X factor on Thursday um, between Wisconsin and Texas. Uh, a little bit more about Wisconsin. You know, they they are second in the country in hitting percentage. They hit three thirteen. Any there? I think they're one of three teams in the country that hit better than three hundred. And I'm just doing that from memory. They might actually be the only team that hits better than three hundred. They do lead the nation in blocks. I know they, they're the only team that is averaging more than three blocks a set. So Wisconsin, just big, tough, strong, physical, outstanding. Uh, one interesting thing I don't think we've really touched on yet, Lincoln, Wisconsin would become the first team to run a 6-2 and win a national championship in 20 years. They'd be the first team since Southern Cal did it in 2003. Um, I, I don't think that's going to usher in a wave of teams running the 6-2. But I think it's um, it's a credit to she- Kelly Sheffield to be flexible with his scheme um, over these last couple of years. To, you know, you go from having um, Lauren Carlini and Sidney Hilly running your offense in a five one to saying, OK, here's where our strengths are. We've got a lot of big hitters. Let's go ahead and run a six two with Izzy Ashburn and MJ Hamill. And um, and they've still made it work and they put up as good as numbers as anyone. So c- kudos to Wisconsin on all of their success so far. I, as I look at this match from all the angles, Lincoln, and I know I didn't have Texas favored to beat Stanford. I'm trying to think, how does Texas beat Wisconsin? What exactly would they have to do to move to the national title match on Sunday afternoon? The normal. Do answer, you have answers to that? Yeah, I don't know if I have any good ones. I mean, the normal answer would be serve them <laughs> out of system. But Wisconsin, uh, as Daniel said, it hit so well out of system that um that it really doesn't matter if you serve their setters or go after their setters in the back row. Um, Franklin is terminating at, a, at a, a very high rate from out of system. So what we have to do is figure out a way to uh, tool against their big block. Their six, seven, six, nine players in the front row, uh, use their block against them, and then hope that some of their hit. I mean, hope that the rest of the hitters, Sarah Franklin, has to do it on her own. They don't get much from any of their other atta- attackers. So um, mm-hmm. they have lost before. I mean. Maybe that's that's the secret recipe. Hopefully, Anna Smrek comes down with a temporary case yeah. of flu. Mm-hmm. I don't know. There's, yeah, when you when you answer. put yourself when you put yourself in the position to say, I hope this team plays well below their um, their capability, or <laughs> other players are sick. Um, it's really not a great position to be in. Uh, I don't, Wisconsin, you know, when they lost to Nebraska, as Emily Eman pointed out on the show last week. Uh, was not at full strength. They didn't have Devin Robinson, one of their opposite hitters. Um, a couple of their other losses on the year, the uh, Anna Smrek was out, I believe, with a concussion, and that's when they lost to Penn State and Purdue and, and allowed Nebraska to, to win the regular season Big Ten championship. Uh, nobody has beaten Wisconsin this year when they've been fully healthy. And I think, you know, if you're going to 
look at ways that Wisconsin might be vulnerable. You probably have to serve Sarah Franklin and get her um, get her worn out and hope that as you know, you move into game three and game four, she gets a little tired and becomes a little more high error. Um, that's one thing with Wisconsin's been able to do is even when they miss, they they're not missing out of bounds. And so and you're going to have to have a really great night offensively like Maddie Skinner and Jenna Wenis are going to need to to come up really big and power Texas to at least, you know, play Wisconsin's offense to a draw. And I think you're going to need to get um, Asia O'Neill some swing, more swings than you've been getting her lately. Yeah, I, I should say Dan Robinson did play against Nebraska, but she was coming off. She had missed a couple of matches prior to that, too, and was coming off an injury, too. So Wisconsin did have their full allotment of players. Whether or not they were full, fully healthy, um, we don't know. Mm-hmm. We don't get medical reports. Either. So I think both both of us would probably say Wisconsin's the the favorite to um sure. to to win the national championship and 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 come out of the final four with the trophy again. Uh let's go to rotation 5. Uh, the all-American teams were announced today. Uh no real surprises at least on my part uh, when I was skimming at Lincoln. Uh, let's get to the Huskers who were honored obviously first. Merritt Beeson, uh Nebraska's opposite hitter, junior opposite hitter and junior libero Lexi Rodriguez were both named to the first team. Uh, freshman setter Bergen Riley was the second team All-American and Harper Murray, the freshman outside hitter, was named to the third team. Nebraska now with 103 All-American honors all time. Uh, this taking Nebraska over the, the 100 All-American mark. Nothing in there really surprises me. I actually would have been surprised if Bergen Riley had been moved up to um, to the first team. Although I know we talked to some people earlier on the show that, that thought that could have been a possibility. I think that's a nice honor for Harper Murray in her freshman year to to be a third team All American. I was a little surprised that the ABCA put three setters on the first team uh, All American, and maybe was Rodriguez the only libero? I don't know if you have this up in front of you right now. I'm going to pull it up. He was the only libero quick, on the but, first team. In fact, the only other libero honored was uh, Elena Scott from Louisville. Was on the second team. Uh, oh, and she's really good. Yeah, and they, they did not have a libero on the uh, third team. So justice for libero. Okay. Fight goes on. We shall not sleep till this is avenged. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what about what about anything else? Anything else on the um, the All American list that that surprised you, or you know, you you thought somebody else in the opposite middle outside category should have should have made it? I don't think so. I mean, this is a fairly compared to what ye- years past. This is a fairly uncontroversial uh, set of mm-hmm. set of uh, set of all All Americans too. I mean. Uh, a couple teams at Nebraska. I mean, Emma Grome from Kentucky was the second team All-American setter. Um, I'm trying to think. Uh, the one campaign, uh, Kendra Waite was the third team All-American. So I know we had, we I heard it's awesome people. Creighton setter, yeah. Got about the one to see on the first team, but yeah, Creighton <laughs> setter is on the third team, which is a nice honor for her. And obviously, you know, the, I think the the, the All America awards are always skewed toward teams that made late runs in the tournament. Um, a, the Final Four is, of course, very well represented on this. Uh, we mentioned Rachel Fairbanks is uh, Pittsburgh setter is a first team All American. Uh, otherwise, Morgan Fingal, um, the right side hitter from the University of Tennessee, was a first team All American. You had Magda Yellarova, um, Washington State's middle, who was a first team All American. A couple of the other Stanford players like Kendall Kip, Kami Minor. We're first teamers. And then Marta Levinska, the opposite, um, do everything opposite for Arizona State, um, was also a, a first team All-American. And then you have some great players on the second team that Nebraska's seen over the years, too. Jill Gillen, um, who led that Arkansas team, such a great performance in the regional final against Nebraska last weekend, was a second team All-American. And then 
uh, Anna DeBeer, Louisville's senior outside, was was also a second team All America. So uh, you can check that out on the ABCA website. And it feels like there's always arguments over this every year. I'm never really that interested in arguments over who made first, second, or third team. But now Nebraska is going to have to to paint the walls in Devaney even further in the off season. Sure, and there will be. Uh, I I believe I am participating in the uh, volleyball mags All Americans, which come out next week after the season's over. So uh, I get to d- dive into this even further and uh, figure out. How much I disagree with all of these these um, uh, awards and everything, right? But uh, so when when these picks come out, you can at Lincoln at Lincoln underscore VB on Twitter and also Lincoln A underscore VB on Threads if you would like to yell at him over his All American picks. Yeah, I but I think yeah there may be a different freshman of the year because I think we like the they like to be a little more uh, controversial and uh, but I think Sarah mm-hmm. Franklin is going to be the national player of the year on Friday and. He's also going to, going to be my pick when I vote for mm-hmm. that. Uh, National Coaches of the Year, both as assistant coach and head coach of the year, come out on Thursday, so the day that you're here in this show. Um, I don't know what you think, Lincoln. We haven't talked about this. I have to imagine John Cook's going to be the National Coach of the Year, going 32-1, and one, leading his team to the Big Ten title, and going to the Final Four. Uh, that's that's a pretty, I would say, lock uh, resume for, for Coach of the Year. I, I don't know. Some other candidates could be Dan Fisher. You know, you bring your team to the final four, third year in a row. Um, Kelly Sheffield, of course, you can make a great case for him. I don't know if the voters are going to, I don't know, be a little spiteful of coaches who who, who have so many transfers on their team. Um, that's something, a thought that just came to me. I don't know if, you know, it, everything's a popularity contest and things like this. Um I don't know that John Cook's the most popular coach in the country, but I think um, if if there is ever a year where Nebraska is not going to be the bad guy at the Final Four, which doesn't always happen, um, it, this would be a year like that. Yeah, for sure. I, I think mean, I'm trying to think because usually the coach of the year goes to a program who overachieves or does does better than their initial projections. So um, just off the top of my head, I mean, Chris Poole at Florida State maybe another one. They mm-hmm. OACC champions ahead a little bit. And then I think J.J. Van Neal of Arizona State, uh, first-year head coach there who uh, led, the, yeah. led, led the team to the Sweet 16 and kind of outperformed a lot of expectations, too. Or you could pick one of the uh, 24 AC or SEC coaches that won their league's coach. Mm. So. Well, I was going to say, I mean, not for, for, for serious on that, uh, if Arkansas had beat Nebraska in the regional final, I mean, Jason Watson yeah. might have made a late, late push for National Coach of the Year and, and would have deserved it for because that's a great story taking a team like that to uh to the final four but i think yeah you're, you're right i would have to agree cook would be in mind which i think is a result which leads into our rotation six six mm-hmm. because there was so much chalk this year though there wasn't a lot of teams that rose up there so jeff you've put a lot of thought yeah. into this rotation six why is there first so- of all i'm so i'm so proud of you for that segue that was that was an excellent segue into rotation six you say i've I have put a lot of thought into it. I've really word vomited a lot about this on the sh- the show's social account. And you can go back and read that um, at Volleyball Pod. It's probably been uh, a week or so ago. But but really, here is the premise. We have three number one seeds in the final four, plus the defending national champion. Um, and, and I'm not picking on Lincoln when I say this, but Lincoln, you told me that in your, your bracket, you had 15 of the 16 Sweet 16 teams identified correctly. Is that right? Sorry, Creighton. Right. Yeah. Link, <laughs> you you couldn't get the smartest basketball mind in the country to pick the NCAA men's basketball tournament Sweet 16 with a 15 out of 16 accuracy. It just can't be done. 
And so the question really is, why are there so few upsets in college volleyball? Why isn't it have the parity of, of uh, college basketball, even on the women's side? Um, and, and there's a couple of reasons I, I think this is true. And we're going to start with the talent reasons. Um, the, first of all, the, the, if you look at the national recruiting rankings, every year the same schools are signing like the, the best classes. It's Nebraska, Texas, Stanford, maybe USC, maybe Minnesota, maybe Wisconsin, maybe Florida. But like there's a group of 10 schools where the the outstanding high school talent just sort of gravitates to um, similar to in football. You know, LSU, Alabama, Georgia are signing your top football classes every year. But because there's fewer players on a volleyball court, the elite players are just going to have more impact on a match. Something else that I can't quantify, but seems to be have strong anecdotal evidence for. Uh, and I think I've talked with John Cook about this over the years. The gap between the elite players, like the Olympic level players in college volleyball, and then the average player, the median player, the gap in the talent between those two pools of player are greater in volleyball than they are in basketball or football. Maybe any other, uh, you know, in women's sports in general, it feels like this is, you know, this is the trend. Your top level college basketball players like, oh gosh, Paige Buchers at UConn or Caitlin Clark at Iowa, those players are just so much better than the average player in their sport that they can they can dominate a match. You know, the, the best men's college basketball player isn't so much better than the average men's college basketball player um, to the extent that volleyball and women's basketball are, are like that. And so if you have one of those elite players, one of those one of ones, then you are going to have a chance. And I remember, you know, talking to some of those years where Nebraska lost to Texas in the regional final and Texas had a Bailey Webster or a Haley Eckerman or a Logan Eggleston type player. You know, John Cook was like, we don't have that. That is that is a, an Olympic level player. A, a you know, a, a destiny hooker maybe is like the best example in Texas's case. Someone who can just jump higher and hit harder and be better than any of your best laid plans can mitigate. And so it's it's really that's my my number one reason for this in the is is the talent distribution. And uh, I'll stop talking for a second, Lincoln, and let you jump in on this if you want. Yeah, and you look at like who's won the national title the past several years too, and you find that one player who stands out, Logan Eggleston for uh, Texas. Uh, Avery Skinner at Kentucky, um, Dana Redke a little bit different as a middle block mm-hmm. from uh, from Wisconsin. But I mean, I was also just looking at who's why this keeps happening. You look at the 2024 uh, top recruiting list. The number number one is going to Penn State. Number two is going to Wisconsin. Number three is going to Texas. Number four is going to Nebraska. So it's just it 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 keeps a cycle. It keeps going. Yeah, perpetuating. Perpetuate. Yeah. 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 So so that's one reason the best players are still going to a, a small select number of schools and the best players are so much better than the average player in the sport that they're able to, to more greatly affect the match. The other one of the other reasons I think this is is correct is volleyball as a sport is just set up more to allow the team with more talent to win more so than football, more so than soccer, more so than basketball. And this is because the structure of the sport favors the more talented team. There is a point scored on every play. You are probably going to have 200 points around that scored in every single match. And in a high aggregate sport like that, where a point scored in every play, um, the, the better team, the team with more talent is just more likely to win. 
So let me give you an example on the other side. In a football game, if you are the better football team, you can go on a 12-play, 85-yard drive and then fumble the ball or throw an interception or just miss a field goal or come up short on downs. And all of that work you just spent proving that you were the better team on the field came to a big old zero on the scoreboard. It didn't manifest itself in any measurable advantage in winning the game. And volleyball is not like that. If you play 10 points, 20 points in volleyball, and the better team wins 12 of them, you're going to have a 12-8 advantage. And so that's going to go a long way. And then, you know, in basketball, you can get a hot start from the three-point line. If you're the less talented team, you can make eight threes in the first half and, you know, go to a 12-point halftime lead that the other team has to then chase for the entire second half. Volleyball, you reset to 0-0 at the end of every set. So you can win the first set, you know, 25-10, you can dominate the first set, and it has no statistical bearing on the rest of the match. It just goes back to 0-0 at the end of every set, and that gives the more talented team an advantage. And yeah. once again, like, jump in on this. It reminds me, like, you look at, like, the, the NBA. That's a sport I, I like to watch, too. Uh, throughout the course of a seven-game series, uh, you're going to get the best team that is going to win with the most talent. Usually they figure out, make adjustments. The best team is going to win a seven-game series. You compare that to college basketball, too, where it's a one-off randomness mm-hmm. happens uh, throughout that. So I mean, that, that's kind of the, the, the macro version of it, too. Like, right. it's, it's like a mini, it's a mini series that race to 25 within that. Mm-hmm. Momentum changes. That's why you see the reverse sweep, yeah. sweeps. Maybe it takes a team a, a little bit to figure out that has a superior talent. Oh, what's this weird style this team is playing? Mm-hmm. Or they're under this team's undersized against a uh, Long Island University, whatever runs a completely different. That's probably different. Sometimes the talent mm-hmm. is so different it doesn't matter. But when you get to the elite levels, the top twenty-five teams, that it makes a big difference uh, to figure out. And that starting mm-hmm. over zero zero, you, you got to prove it, and you got to win, do it three times, which makes it really hard to yeah. do. Yeah. And and finally, let's look at the specific you know circumstances of the NCAA tournament in college basketball or the um you know the the football playoffs. These are all played on neutral sites. Uh, in volleyball, the, the top seeds, the higher seeded teams are still rewarded with the opportunity of playing at home in the first and second round. And then if you're a top seeded team, also in the Sweet 16 and Elite Eight rounds. And that's a big deal. We know that across any sport, home court advantage is going to make a big difference. And so, you know, Nebraska, if they're playing that regional final match against Arkansas and a neutral site, or if they're playing it in Fayetteville, are they going to win that match? Or did the, you know, the value of playing at home in the Devaney Center was that really so much that they were able to overcome? And I guess, you know, you, you can't quantify that without a lot of statistical analysis, but there is a huge advantage still in the higher seeded teams being able to play those matches at home, which is another contributor to why you see the same teams uh, advancing into the final four over and over again. For sure. And what's going to be interesting, too, is volleyball the last couple of years have started to seed the top 32 teams. If they continue to seed a top 64, I don't know if that'll make it even worse or if that will help kind of the uh, the parity. But it really, uh, it, it, like I said, playing on the home court matters. Uh, they used to go to pre-assigned uh, regionals, too, so it wasn't a little more neutral. They went back rewarding the teams, too. So uh, they've messed around with a little bit of systems. Um, but again, the, the cream keeps rising to the top. I mean, you keep seeing a lot of chalk, which builds a brand name because, like, the the club of national mm-hmm. champions is very small. I believe it's only seven. Is that right? It might be like twelve. Well, sorry, schools I don't who have ever won yeah. a national a championship, but are, it's certainly you know less than twenty. Yeah, and recently that's kind of even went out even further because you had a lot of the California schools that won in the early eighties uh, and nineties that have mm-hmm. 
on offices. Yeah. Hawaii and Pacific and Long Beach State are not currently challenging for for national championships. So that's uh that's Jeff's rationale on why we you know th- there are fewer upsets and there's more chalk in the NCAA tournament. If you've got thoughts otherwise, uh, you can email them to us at volleyballstate@gmail.com or you can at us at volleyball pod. So that is our final four preview show. By the time you listen to this, Nebraska is going to be getting ready to play Pittsburgh at 6 p.m. Central Time on ESPN, followed by Texas against Wisconsin. The winners will play for the national championship on Sunday afternoon at 2 p.m. That match is going to be on ABC, the first time that the women's volleyball national championship match has ever been on a major broadcasting network. And we hope you tune in and help continuing to grow the sport. Thank you so much for listening to our show today and all season long. We're going to come back next week with a season wrap-up show and tell you a little bit about our plans for the show once the college season is done. Um, Spoiler alert, we're not going away. We will just not be on your phone and in your lives quite so frequently. So thank you so much for listening to us uh, this season. Please continue to subscribe and review to Volleyball State. You can find us on everywhere that you find your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, something called Podbean, something called Stitcher, things that I don't understand, but you can always run to the internet to VolleyballState.com and find uh, all of our episodes. Once again, thank you so much to Bison Incorporated and the University of Nebraska Federal Credit Union for sponsoring our show and helping to continue to grow this platform and give us a space to talk about volleyball. You can follow me on Twitter at Lincoln underscore VB. Feel free to read all of our coverage at HuskersIllustrated.com, and we will talk to you next week. Thank you for listening, and keep living in the volleyball state.